can grab your seat. Please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 22. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's Bibles in the pews uh, and also at the table at the back. Please do grab one. Just while you turn there, let me just, um, a couple of notices. Um, first of all, we're having a bring and share lunch today. Um, afterwards, um, if you haven't planned to stay or haven't brought anything, that doesn't matter. We'd love you to stay. I'm sure there'll be plenty uh, of food to go around. So please do stay behind for that good opportunity to just sit and, and have food together and, and fellowship with one another. One other thing just to make you aware of, um, the sign-up sheets are on the, the back welcome table for uh, the mission week that we're hoping and planning and praying to have next Easter, first week of this Easter school holidays. Um, it, the plan is to do things in the morning for primary school age, children from the Tuesday to Friday, and then at least three of those evenings do something in the, in the, in the evening for secondary school age kids. Uh, we really do would love you to volunteer for that. I'm just letting you know there's lots of different ways to volunteer for that. There's lots of different ways to get involved. You don't necessarily have to be someone who's teaching or doing something up front. There's lots of different roles even behind the scenes that we need people to do. So please go and have a look at that uh, list. Look at the different things that you maybe could give yourself to um, uh, and consider what it would look like to, to just give your time to that. We'd love as many as possible to do that. Matthew chapter 22. Looking at verses 34 to 40 this morning. What is our mission? What is our purpose as a church? Do you know? You walk past it every Sunday morning. It's on the welcome banner. I'm testing your knowledge here. Why are we doing what we're doing? What is our purpose here? What is our mission as a church? It's an important question because we must know what we are to do and we must know that in order to make sure we don't drift from it. What is our mission and our purpose as a church? Well, the writing that's on that banner is up on the screen. It is this. It's to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment in, air, and beyond. That's our mission. That's our vision. That's our purpose as a church. I once heard someone say that the, the mission of every church should be the Great Commission with their postcode tag, tagged on to the end. So we are to glorify God through fulfilling the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment, and we do that in a specific place, in a specific context with specific people. We're to glorify God. We're, everything we are to do is to be to honor and lift His name high. That's what we were created to do. We were created to glorify Him. What is the Great Commission then? Well, Matthew 28, again, will be up on the screen for you. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is the commission the Lord gave his first disciples and then consequently to us. And that then brings us to the passage we're in today, the great commandment. My hunch is that as Christians... And maybe perhaps as a church, we're, we're more familiar with the, the Great Commission than what that means for us. After all, we've planted a church, so in some ways that's what we're living and breathing in a significant way as a church. Perhaps we're not as familiar with the Great Commandment, which is essential to the Great Commission. What is it that we are to teach those that are discipled and baptized to observe? What is it that Jesus has commanded? Jesus saves us to live a life of obedience. What is the obedience? What is the commands that he calls us to? And why do they matter? If the Great Commission is what we are to do, 
then the great commandment is how we are to live. You see it in these verses in front of you, 34 to 40. Let me read them. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What is it that we are to do? We are to make disciples. What is it that we are to teach those disciples? How are we to live? The great commandment tells us that. And these commandments here in verses 34 to 40, they literally get right to the heart of what we were created for and how we are called to live in this world. This is ground zero for the, for the human being. It tells us what we were created for and how we're called to live in this world. And that means that they're not just for Christians. These are not just for the church. They apply to every human who has ever lived. The great commandment asks, answers a question that we all ask. How are we to live? How are we to live in this world? How are we to treat our fellow human being? What is to be our rule of life, so to speak? And it answers that with one word. Love. An answer maybe that the average person on the street would agree with you. If they were, you were to ask them, how are we to live? How are we to treat one another? The word love would, I'm sure, come up. But how are we to love? How are we to love? Who are we to love? Why is it then that often people don't love one another well? If most people acknowledge the need to love one another in this world, then why is it so often our families, our homes, our, our communities are places that are unloving? Well, Matthew 22 speaks definitively and authoritatively to those things, to those questions. And as we'll see, the teacher of Matthew 22, Jesus, is the very definition and embodiment of real love, of true love, the love that we were just singing about, a love that can change our lives eternity, uh, eternally and that can transform our lives and the lives of those around us. So the big response for this passage that is put in front of us this morning is this, God calls us, commands us, you shall love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. You shall love God with all of your heart and your neighbor as yourself. That's the first thing then we see this morning together is this, you shall love the Lord your God. So Jesus, we're jumping into the Gospel of Matthew. He's been teaching. He's been claiming to be the Son of God. He's been backing that up with miracles. Many people are in awe of him, but many people are rejecting him, among whom are the, the religious leaders of the days, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They've made a pact together to arrest him in order to ultimately get him killed. And here in Matthew 20, 22, they are challenging his authority. They're trying to trap him with various questions in order to get him to make it out as if he is a fraud, a liar, a blasphemer. That's what they would want so they can justify their hatred towards him and their desire to kill him. But this is Jesus. They weren't trapping him easily. If you look at verse 34, he just silenced the Sadducees. He was a master conversationalist. He knew how to quiet these people down. He silenced the Sadducees. Now the Pharisees come and have a go at him to see if they can trap him and trip him up in his words. One of the Pharisees, verse 35, a lawyer specifically, asks him a question to test him. There's no good intentions behind this question. The question is this, teacher, Jesus, what is the great commandment in the law? 
the law there, the lawyer has in mind the, the Ten Commandments plus over 600 other laws that we see revealed in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. So over 600 commandments. And he's trying to trap him here. He's trying to get Jesus to say that one is more important than the other so that he could be accused of neglecting or overemphasizing one part of the law when the law was supposed to be taken as a whole. So if they get Jesus to answer with one specific law, they can say, ha, he, he emphasizes that at the neglect of these. Jesus, of course, responds, quoting Deuteronomy 6, which these Pharisees knew. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The Pharisees and those listening in were expecting to hear Jesus say something like, you shall not do this or you shall do this. Instead, Jesus says, you shall love. Something they had forgotten. In doing this, Jesus gets right to the heart of the law, to the very center of it, to the thing which undergirds all of the law, love. He's exposing here the Pharisees and the Sadducees and how they have made the law shallow and hollow and hypocritical by focusing on only outward behavior, by majoring on all the minors when the law had always demanded their heart. It had demanded a deep internal devotion and love for the Lord and for one another. All of us, not just the Pharisees here, all of us are commanded, and notice that it's a command. We are called to act. We are called to choose to love God. We are to love Him, first of all. That means we are to value Him and esteem Him, to be totally devoted to Him, to worship Him. We are to love the Lord your God. We aren't to love something of our own invention. We are to love the Lord your God, the one true holy God, the, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, the God who has revealed Himself in the person of Christ, the, the, the great I Am, Yahweh. There are no other gods except Him. We are to love Him truly, totally, exclusively. He is worthy of that because He is, as the verse says, Lord. He is Master. And we're to love the Lord your God, not just with part of us or the little bit that we've left on the side that's free. It's, it's all of our being. When He says there, it's with all our heart and soul and mind. Taken together, that just means everything, our whole being, all of us. Every part of us, our affections, our desires, our will, our thoughts, our bodies, our souls, all of it is to be submitted to Him and used for His worship and glory. Our hearts in the Bible are the controlling center of our whole lives. God demands all of it. All of it. He demands our whole hearts. He demands our whole lives. Only when that happens, only when our hearts rightly love God, will we truly live as we were created to live for Him. And Jesus says, this is the great and first commandment. This is the great and first commandment. Loving God is ground zero for the Christian life. It's a ground zero for every human's life. And it's not just ground zero. It's not just a foundation on which we then go on to do other things. It's the key principle that lies at the heart of all that we are, of all that we would do. 
love God. We were created by God to love and worship Him. That is the primary reason, primary way we were created to love and worship Him. And only when we do that will we be truly satisfied and live the way we were created to live. We were made to love, right? We instinctively know that and feel that as humans. The reality is that we were created, first of all, to have God as our first love. Yet, if we look at our lives, both now and maybe in the past, we have not, by nature or by choice, always loved God. The Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 2, says this, what does God's law require of us? It goes on to quote the great commandment that we just read. And then it says in question five, can you live up to all of this perfectly? Simple answer, no. No. We have a natural tendency as it says, to hate God and our neighbor. We weren't always like that, by the way. God created us able to love him and neighbor. But due to the sin of our first parents, which we have inherited, our nature is now corrupt and inclined towards hatred of God and neighbor. And that hatred is justly deserving of punishment from God leading to eternal death. But as we know, God didn't leave it there. God didn't leave us there. Here is the God whom we are called to love. 1 John 4, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live and not die as a result of our sin, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is the appeasing sacrifice for our sins. That's how he has loved us. We are called then to love a God who has first loved us, who has loved us while we were still sinners, who has loved the people and sent his son into a world whose natural tendency is to hate him and hate neighbor. A God who loves us so much, he was willing to send his one and only son to stand in our place for our sins. 1 John 4 tells us we cannot know love apart from God. We cannot know real, true love apart from Him because God is love. That is His very nature. And the greatest act the world has ever seen that we can ever know is the act of in love sending Jesus into the world. Jesus who came and fulfilled the law by loving his father perfectly and his neighbor. In fact, loving his neighbor to the extent of laying down his life for them. Jesus who came and bore the curse of the law that we deserved, who saves us from that and now frees us in order to fulfill it and to live it out in love. So here's the God we are called to love. Here's the God we get to love a God of steadfast, covenant, redeeming love. Do you know him? Have you trusted in his son, Jesus? So we are to love God, but how do we actually do that? How do we actually go about loving God? Verse 40, if you look down, tells us that on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's shorthand for all of the Old Testament 
all that God has revealed and commanded. All of that depends on or hangs on these two commandments. Particularly in mind is the Ten Commandments, which is the unchanging moral law of God. There's going to be a picture up on the screen for you, which shows how the two commandments to love God and love neighbor really capture the heart of the Ten Commandments. Loving God is Commandments 1 to 4. Loving neighbor is Commandments 5 to 10. And as we'll see later on, Jesus himself upheld these things, fulfilled them, and applied them to us. So how are we to love God? Well, Commandments 1 to 4 tell us how we're to love God. And the question then is, as Christians, if our nature wasn't to love God, we've been saved by him, how can we keep, can we keep these laws? He calls us to love him. How can we keep these laws? Can we keep these laws? Well, if you're a Christian, the good news is, if you've been saved, yes. God in his love has given you a new spirit-empowered heart with these commandments etched on them. Hebrews 10 tells us that. This is a covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. We've been given new hearts empowered by the Spirit with these commands etched on them that yes, though we will obey them imperfectly, we can now love God. We can now love neighbor as we're called to. We're not what we will be one day, yes. Sin still lingers in our hearts and in our lives. And obeying these things requires effort, but it is possible, okay? How then are we to love God? First of all, we shall have no other gods before him. Commandment number one. We shall have no other gods before him. Loving God means not loving any other God. We avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. We rightly know the only true God, trust in him alone, and look to him for every good thing, humbly and patiently. We love, fear, and honor him with all of our heart. In short, we give up anything rather than go against God or his will. We love him exclusively and only. We're to have no other gods before him, and we are to not make any carved image of him, any idol. We shall not bow down or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. His love is an exclusive love. We are in no way to make a God of our own liking or or worship him in any other way that he has not commanded. We are to put anything before God. We are not to put anything before God in our hearts. We are to keep ourselves free from idols. That's the second commandment. Third commandment, we're not to take the Lord, name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We're to do nothing and say nothing that would cause his name to be reviled in our lives. We should approach the use of his name with reverence and awe. And then fourthly, we love God by remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy. We are to rest in Christ spiritually and gather with his church for worship, devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to baptism, the Lord's Supper, to prayer, and to making sure that no one amongst us is in need. This is how we love God. Yes, we still mess up in that. Christ has come and fulfilled the law for us. But through him and in him now, we can still obey these things. We are called to obey these things. 
that's how we are to love God. How do we grow for our loving God? Well, first of all, by obeying these things. It's kind of simple, okay? We grow in our love for God by obeying His commandments, by having no other gods, by not taking His name in vain, by not making any carved image, by gathering to worship Him. John 15 tells us that if we are to abide in God's love and the love of Christ, how do we do that? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Do you want to be joyful? Do you want to know and experience and feel the love of God? Obey Him. Obey His commandments. That's how we grow in our love for God. And we grow in our love for God, of course, as we consider and meditate and rejoice upon the love of God in Christ for us. As we behold the beauty and the benefits of the gospel and how that totally transforms us and all that that means for us, both present and future. But we can only truly obey them from love for God. Love for God is our motivation for obeying these things. In His grace, He gives us a heart that can love Him. And the other type of obedience, we can go about trying to obey those things. We can do number four. We can gather. But if we don't do it from a heart that loves God, it's just hollow, shallow, and hypocritical, and it will not last. We will only obey these things in a lasting way when it comes from a heart that loves God. If you aren't a Christian here this morning, know then that as humans, we can only know how to live and to truly love in light of God. We can only know how to live and to truly love in light of God. As creator, he alone is the source of all goodness and morality. He is the only source of love because he is love. You won't find it elsewhere. You will find echoes and shadows of it that fall short in our world because all humans are made in the image of God. But if you want to know love truly and really, you need to go to God. And you know this through creation, which reveals his moral order, and your conscience tells you that there is right and wrong. Yet you suppress the truth about God. And instead of worshiping him, you worship idols of your own making. Your love of neighbor will always fall short. You stand condemned. You don't need a new rule of life. As it's often talked about in our culture, you need a new heart. Jesus offers that if you would turn from your sin and turn to him. Turn from your sin, turn to him. Experience his love in Christ and be given a new heart that can love God and truly love neighbor. Second maybe big application from this, we are to love God, is that law and love go together. Okay, that's what Matthew 22 teaches us. We often fall into two traps or two errors. First trap is we emphasize law over love. As Christians, we can often act like that Pharisee. We can often act like lawyers. We can just focus on outward behavior, jump on it, emphasize it too much. We can major on all the minors. Non-Christians often view us like this, don't they? They often view us as lawyers, rightly or wrongly. Jesus reminds us here, both here and in his teaching, that love is at the very heart of the law. They are not opposed to one another. Second error or trap we fall into is that we emphasize love over law. 
we pit rules against relationship. Following Jesus is all about relationship, not about rules. Mm, I'm not so sure. Yes, we don't earn his love through our good works, but he saves us for good works. He calls us to obey commands. This trap, in this trap, we don't realize that the law, the teachings of Jesus are how we are to love. The law is a freeing thing because it shows us how we are to love. They help us know how to love God and to love neighbor. So often we define love in vague terms, don't we? Or maybe individualistic terms. Love is love. Be kind. Don't harm anyone. You do what's right for you. Be positive. Be respectful. Be responsible. Yeah, but who gets to decide what that looks like? Who gets to decide what responsible is? Who gets to decide what harm is? Who gets to decide what love is? God does. God does. He defines it by his moral law, and the good news is that real, true love is at the heart of that law. Why would you go elsewhere? find what Sinclair Ferguson says on this really helpful. He says, the law is love-shaped and love is law-shaped. The law is love-shaped and love is law-shaped. That's what Matthew 22 is all about. So we've thought about that in relation to God, now in relation to our neighbor, because as 1 John 4 tells us, whoever loves God Whoever truly loves God will love his brother. These two commandments stand and fall together. The first thing we saw then was you shall love the Lord your God. Second thing is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you look down at verse 39 to 40. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus here draws on Leviticus 19, verse 18, that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Okay, we are to love our neighbor. Not just tolerate them or put up with them. Love asks not, where is the line, so I can get as close to it without crossing it. Love does not ask, what is the least I can do to seem like I'm doing the right thing here? Love asks, how can I love this person and do good to them and honor God in this moment? It's a maximal approach to loving our neighbor, not a minimalist approach. Love causes us to approach our relationships in that way. What's the most I can do for this person? Not what's the least I can do to take my list off and be on my way. So again, what shape is our love for neighbor to take? Remember, love is law-shaped. How are we to love? Well, the image again, which will be on the screen for you, shows us we're to love our neighbor by commandments 5 to 10. We're to honor our father and mother. They are our neighbors in that sense. Children are to love, honor, respect, and obey their parents as imperfect as they may be. This goes for all who are in authority over them as well, so that goes for your teachers. There's a sense in which authority here uh, of those who are over kids is implicit here. Children are to love, honor, respect, and obey their parents, their teachers, or anyone else who's in authority over them. Implicit here, too, is that parents are to love their children, that they're to love their children and nurture them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
That's how parents are to love their children. Honor your father and mother. Commandment number six, you shall not murder. This kind of seems like a really basic way to, to love our neighbor is to not murder them. But when love is the underlying motive here behind this commandment, it's not just about not taking life. It's about valuing life. To, to not murder means to not take life unjustly. That incorporates murder, suicide, assisted suicide, and abortion. Love goes much deeper, or this command goes much deeper than the act of murder. To obey this command means not getting angry at our neighbor, as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he, he's applying this to the heart as it was always supposed to be applied. It means not getting angry at our neighbor, not belittling them or insulting them. It means being a peacemaker and a reconciler. It's a command which calls us not to repay evil with evil, to leave justice and vengeance in the hands of God when we've been wronged. And of course, this command incorporates loving our enemies. Those who would persecute us and be angry at us and seek maybe even to murder us. Implicit in this command too is that God has a role to, government has been given a role by God to uphold this command as it has been given the sword to prevent murder and preserve life. Doesn't always do that perfectly. But this command, part of God's design, is that the government has been given the sword in order to help uphold this command. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. That means remaining faithful in marriage, remaining sexually pure within marriage and outside of it. Marriage being one man, one woman, and lifelong covenant marriage. If we are married, the, the baseline isn't just to not commit adultery, it's to love and cherish our spouse, our closest neighbor, Right? They are our closest neighbor if we're married. Loving our neighbor here means not lusting after someone, not our spouse, but treating them as family. Loving our neighbor here means not participating in pornography, which exploits our neighbor, particularly the most vulnerable amongst us women and children. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal. Loving our neighbor means not stealing from them. This commandment forbids outright robbery and theft of something that is not ours. It means not earning our money unjustly through manipulation, swindling, or scheming of our neighbor. It means not manipulating government financial aid. It means not exploiting financial loopholes. It means not wasting what God has given us through gambling. It means not being a lover of money and material goods. It means not stealing time from our employer by being late or being lazy. And again, implicit in this commandment is the opposite, the positive. This commandment calls us to do the opposite of stealing, which is to be generous, particularly to those in need. That's how we love our neighbor. You shall not steal also means we don't participate in, but seek to speak up for and work towards the end of human trafficking and all types of slavery, which is man-stealing, as the Bible calls it. Next commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is a bit of a whistle-stop tour, the Ten Commandments, as you can see. But this is important, because we can talk very vaguely about loving our neighbor, but what does that actually mean? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It means not lying to or about your neighbor. It means not gossiping or slandering about someone. That's what's incorporated in this commandment. 
It means doing what we can to defend, defend and advance our neighbor's honor and reputation. It means speaking about our neighbor and to our neighbor truthfully and in a loving way. And that we should only say to them which, what, that which is good for building them up. And then lastly, we are not to covet our neighbor, not to covet their house, their neighbor's wife, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, anything that is your neighbor's. We're not to covet anything that our neighbor has. How do we obey this command? By loving God first. We can't obey the, the second six without first obeying the, the Lord and loving him. Why must we love him first to obey this command? Because we will only be content and not covet when our love for God is supreme, when our love for God is first, a heart that loves God first and foremost will be content, and that will guard that heart from coveting that which it does not have. So if you're coveting this morning, or you're jealous, the call here is to remember and to grow in your love for God. Here is then the shape of our love. Here is the shape our love is to take. Here is what we are to love, and therefore it tells us what we are also to hate. Families, communities, countries will only flourish in love when they are shaped by God's good law. And love for God is what provides motivation for these things, isn't it? Love for God is what causes us to obey these things from, from the heart and to obey them truly. Without love for God, and love for neighbor. Do you know what we're left with in our community, in our lives? All we're left with is disciplining ourselves and striving as communities to be good and do good to others. And that just ultimately doesn't work. There will be echoes of that and shadows of that as those created in the image of God and in his common grace. But if there is no love for God and love for neighbor as a result of that, all we're left with is striving and disciplining ourselves towards treating one another well and ultimately that won't work it will always fall short because of sin so for you and me this morning true love for neighbor must be preceded by love for god true love for god is evidence in love for neighbor the two go together there is no one without the other and as a church the command to love our neighbor starts here starts here amongst us. Romans 12 says that love is to be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another. He's speaking to the church here, love one another with a brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. That loving one another with brotherly affection is what God has designed us to experience and to give ourselves to. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you're part of this church you have to, you get to be part of that. Be part of making this a place where people receive and experience brotherly affection. And of course, it is by this love that people will know that we truly are disciples of Jesus, that people will know that we really love God. How will they know if we're not frauds? How will they know we're not hypocrites? How will they know that our worship isn't empty because we truly love one another. That is one of, if not the most critical and powerful parts of our witness in this time, how we love one another. We proclaim the gospel verbally, our love for one another displays it. 
we point to, in our love for one another, Jesus. Jesus, who perfectly loved his neighbor, who perfectly loved God, who endured false witnesses and murder on the cross in order to free us from the penalty of our lawlessness. Matt Smethurst, the writer, says this, and I used this quote way back in the Sermon on the Mount. The lawmaker became the lawkeeper and then died for lawbreakers. The lawmaker, God, became the lawkeeper in Christ and died for lawbreakers. For those who trust in him, who still mess up in the law, who still mess up in their love, as we all do, if we're in Christ, God's grace continues to cover our sin when we seek forgiveness from him. So, this is our call. This is at the heart of who we are, who we were made to be, to love God with all our heart and our neighbor as ourselves. A love which is made possible and flows from the love of God in Christ for us. So in light of his love for us, let us be a people, let us as a church harvest heir, be a people who both in the years to come and now seek to be those who love God and love neighbor with our whole hearts. Let that be the, the primary thing we give ourselves to, the primary way in which we live. Love God and love others. That is to be our rule of life. That is to be our rule of life as a church. Let that be the defining characteristic of who we are and what we are known for. Let me just pray for us. Father, we come to you so thankful that in the midst of our sin and our struggling and our waywardness and our often hard-heartedness, that you love us, that you love us in Christ, that your love was manifested in the person and work of Christ for us. Father, I pray that that reality, that that truth would sink deep, deep, sink deep into our hearts this morning, that it would cause our affections to be captured afresh for love for you. Father, would you cause me, would you cause us by your Spirit to have our whole hearts, our whole lives, every thought, every affection, every deed, every word, to be caught up in love for you and love for neighbor. Help us to live these things out. Help us to obey your commands. Help us to remember that at the heart of your law is love and that your law is a good thing which teaches us and directs us how to love. Forgive us, Father, for when we fall short of that and keep renewing us day by day to become more like your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.